Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. While you're turning there, just another note about Sunday. Um, because of the potluck, I was supposed to continue the series and, and be in Romans, the end of Romans chapter 15 on Sunday, but the more I studied, it was like Romans 16 fits with Sunday. So we're going to do things out of order on Sunday. We're going to study Romans 16 on Sunday and then go back and pick up Romans 15 uh, the following week and finish up our, our series in, in the book of Romans. Tonight, we're back in 1 Corinthians. And I want to start out this way. God really impressed this upon me as I was reading and studying this passage once again that, you know, many times, even as Christians, we feel very small, we feel very insignificant. Um, and, and one of the things that came through in this passage to me was how God wants us to see the significance of our life, that, that he created us and that we have such purpose and that he wants to raise us up. He wants to elevate us and what we're about. And that as Francis Schaeffer said many years ago, there are no small places, there's no little places, there's no little people in God's eyes. And so I hope that that sort of rings out of the passage tonight as well. Now before we dive into it, I also want to say this. Paul's going to talk about things like marriage and singleness and sex and all these kind of good topics, right? And like scripture, many times uh, it answers a lot of our questions, but it can also create some questions as well. My desire every time I teach the word of God is always to hopefully answer more questions than I create. But this is certainly a passage that may create some questions for you. That's okay. The reason that's okay is because right from the very beginning, one of the things that we see is that God elevates questions. Why do I say that? Well, because in the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul reminds us that the reason he's responding the way he is in this chapter now is because of the questions that the Corinthians had that they wrote him about. In fact, from chapter 7 through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, everything now that Paul writes to them about is really answers to their questions. In the first six chapters, he started off by just telling them the things that God had laid on his heart. But now he takes the rest of the book to answer their questions. And it reminds us, it's okay to have questions. And in fact, asking questions is a great way for us to learn. If we have questions and we never ask them, then how do we ever discover things? How do we ever grow? And so questions are good. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions. Don't feel inferior about having questions. We all have questions. And, and many times as believers, the more we study the Word of God, the more questions that it produces. That's okay. But there's also something else that obviously we see in this passage. And that is that when the Corinthians had questions, spiritual questions, questions about God, who did they go to? 
They went to someone that they trusted, Paul. And so we have to be aware of that as well. That it's okay to have questions, it's okay to ask questions, but let's make sure that we're careful about who we ask the questions of. Are the people that we're asking the questions of, do we really believe that they have a handle on the Word of God and that they're walking with God and that they will give us scriptural, spiritual, biblically-based answers? Or are we just asking somebody and they're just giving it their best shot? And sometimes that does more damage than it does good. Sometimes that even creates more questions that are even destructive rather than productive. So that's why Paul starts out in chapter 7 by saying, Now with regard to the issues you wrote me about. Here's how he starts off. First of all, they said to him, We've come to the conclusion that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Really? And here's why the Corinthians came to that conclusion. Because like human beings, many times, we overreact to things. See, they had, they had, they had been taught about all the sexual immorality and stuff, and so they came to the conclusion, you know what? It'd just be better if we just all remained celibate and just didn't touch anybody. You know, that's just the way to do it. And Paul's going to begin to tell them, no, no. Just as, just as God through Paul is going to elevate questions, God is going to use Paul to elevate sex as long as it's kept in the right perspective the way God designed it. That sex is not, you know, dirty and evil, and something gross, as long as it's kept within the boundaries that God, the one who designed it and created it for, it's used in that fashion. And yet again, I know even from my own background, even though I can't speak real thoroughly about it, because I was a real little kid, but growing up in the church background that I grew up in, very traditional, very fundamental, even at church, you didn't talk about sex. I mean, Christians just, that was just a taboo issue. And yet, God talks about sex. And He writes about it and He teaches about it. In fact, I think what God says about sex and what He says about everything is so important here in chapter 7 because one of the principles that Paul is laying down here to the Corinthians is this. If we as Christians want to counteract the corruption and perversion that the world places on anything, whether it's sex or anything, then we have to do it right. And then that will counteract the corruption and perversion. If we don't know how to do it right, then we're not going to give the world a good picture of what it looks like over against the way that it's perverted and corrupted in the world. And so Paul says, no, that's really not the way it should be. He says, now because of immoralities, each man should have relations with his own wife. There's so much we could say, but one of the things I'll say here because it's growing in popularity is you'll notice that the Bible is very clear that sex needs to be contained within marriage, but also that marriage is between one woman and one man and not one man and three wives and not one man and one man, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so we got that. But then he goes on to say, and each woman with her own husband. 
Now, again, obviously here, Paul's not anti-sex. He just says, but in marriage, that's where it needs to take place. And he goes down through her and basically says, look, if you, if you keep it in the right boundaries, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. God created it. And so he's elevating it in the eyes of the Corinthians rather than having them get some kind of warped view about it based upon the bad way that it gets corrupted and perverted in society. Now I want to say this before we move on any further. Paul is not saying here that the primary reason why people should get married is so that they can release their sexual desire. Marriage is so much more than that. But Paul is saying in this passage that it definitely is a very positive byproduct of marriage in that whatever sexual desire God has given me, if he's not given me the gift of being celibate and remaining single and being pure, that that certainly is a great way to have that released in the marriage bond. But then notice what he says in verse 3. A husband should give to his wife her sexual rights. And likewise, a wife to her husband. Now, here, we see Paul elevating women. You know, many people think that the Bible, you know, puts women down the great... No. Everywhere that biblical teaching went, women's place in society was elevated. In, in that culture, back thousands of years ago, women, in many ways, just like in some places still today, were just looked like as objects. They weren't given any rights. They weren't given equal standing to their husband. Yet notice here in the teaching on sexual intimacy in the marriage that Paul gives a woman equal rights, if you will, to her husband. That was unheard of. That might not hit us very strongly because of, you know, the society we live in. But a couple thousand years ago, that was huge. And we're going to see that he does that again with women on down through the passage. So he's elevating questions. He's elevating uh, the sex as long as it's kept in the right place. He's elevating women. He's going to elevate your role in society. He's going to elevate your role in the church throughout this passage. He's going to elevate and raise up your influence with the people around you, especially if you do find yourself in a situation where you're married to an unsaved person or you have children who are not yet believers. All of that. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through the passage. So notice he says in verse 4, it is not the wife who has rights to her own body. In other words, in marriage, the spouses are obligated to each other, especially when it comes to this whole idea of Sexual intimacy. In the same way, it is not the husband who has rights to his own body, but the wife. Therefore, he says in verse 5, do not deprive each other. See, that there was even teaching in Corinth that even amongst married couples that it was more spiritual to not have sex. Because again, they got that warped view and therefore they overreacted and said, oh, it's bad. So we, no, Paul says, no. In fact, Paul says, 
As a Christian couple, you better not deprive yourself of sexual intimacy except by mutual agreement for a specified time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then resume your relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, Paul is giving us a principle that not only deals with sexual intimacy in marriage, but really is a principle that, that is true in all of our lives. Be careful of what we are omitting in our life that God permits, because when we omit things that God encourages us to do, we open ourselves up to satanic attack. When we think of sin, many times we think of commission, things that we shouldn't do that we do. But the Bible also places a premium on things that we should be regularly doing, And that if we don't regularly do the things that we should be doing, we also open ourselves up to attack. And again, obviously in the context, he's talking here about sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. But again, the principle is true throughout our lives. That when we omit things, for instance, reading our Bible regularly, prayer, we open ourselves up to attack. Not regularly attending a a local church where we are a part of a local church family. We open ourselves up to attack. The things that we should do on a regular basis, if we don't do them, it gives Satan a foothold, just as Paul says. Now, notice verse 6, though. He says, I say this as a concession, meaning that through the experiences of life, he has permission from God to say this, but it's again, it's not a command directly from God. He says, I wish that everyone was as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one this way, another that. And many believe, as I do, that Paul was single. Now, does that mean that Paul was never married? I don't know. We don't have any. Was Paul a widower? Don't know. Some even believe that Paul was married, but when he became a Christian, that his wife divorced him and left him because she was an unbeliever. Again, we don't know. But Paul is saying, look, it's also okay to be single. And we're going to talk more about that. But Paul does use the word gift here. I love that word. It's an extraordinary power that distinguishes each of us from the other. And and Paul is saying every Christian has been given a gift. And one of those gifts in this context is the gift of being celibate and being able to remain pure even though I'm not married. But Paul understands not everybody has that gift. But Paul does say every Christian has gifts. We all have extraordinary powers from God that distinguish us from other Christians that God gives us in order to bring glory to Him and serve one another. Again, he's elevating us. Then he says in verse 8, To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is best for them to remain as I am. And he's talking now to singles. And he's saying, singles, you've got to get to the point where you realize it's okay to be single. In fact, the word best here in the original language means to be admired. Wow! Isn't that different from our society where people look at singles and go, I wonder what's wrong with them. They're still single. As if something's wrong with them because they're not married. And Paul is saying, we've got to change that view. Paul says, I'm single and I'm okay with it. And actually he says, remaining single, especially if you can remain pure is something to be admired rather than 
something looked at negatively. Wow. So again, what's it? He's elevating singleness. And he's going to go on later to say, look, don't fall into the trap that many singles do that they, like all of us, whether we're married, single, or whatever, that we go through these times in life where the grass is always greener and, well, if I was just married, I'd be happy. And if, if I was, you know, married, I'd become closer to God. And Paul's like, no, no, no. We all have to learn to be content where we are. If I can't learn to be happy where I am, I won't ever become happy no matter where I am. Paul is saying to all of us, whether we're single, married, or whatever. And that's a big theme throughout this as well. But he does say in verse 9, If they cannot exhibit self-control, then let them get married. For it is better to marry than to burn with sexual desire. Paul says, don't... Again... Marriage is not reduced to just an outlet for sexual desire. But Paul says, if you're going to be unfaithful to the Lord and you cannot remain pure, then that certainly is something that you need to consider. Verse 10. To the married I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife should not divorce a husband. And now he's going to begin to elevate marriage. He's now, if you do get married... Don't ever enter into marriage, the institution of marriage, unadvisedly or lightly, because God elevates marriage. But if she does, verse 11, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, guys, because this isn't what the message is all about. But this verse is a key verse to me that gives women, especially, and I'm going to use them, leverage. Many questions I get is, what if a wife is in an abusive relationship? And you're telling me and you're teaching that the Bible really only gives two outs, if you will, for a Christian. That either their spouse dies and they're, you know, permitted to to remarry or if there's been some kind of sexual uh, immorality, then, you know, according to Matthew 19. But notice here, Paul just says, look, you can get divorced. You just can't get remarried. And so I think that's important to consider. A lot of times, though, when people come up and ask me the question about divorce, they're really asking me about remarriage. Because in their mind, it's one and the same. And all I have to, I try to point out to them is, look, there's times where I believe you may end up in divorce. God gives you that leverage, that freedom. You don't have to stay there in an abusive situation. But all the word says is just then remain unmarried or be reconciled at some point to your husband. Again, that's not what the message is about, but I did want to point that out. I think that's important. He goes on to say, and a husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, verse 12, I, not the Lord, if a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is happy, she literally chooses or determines to live with him, then again, don't divorce. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is happy to live with her, he should not divorce him. For here's why. The unbelieving husband is sanctified, spiritually influenced, Because of the believing wife. 
And the unbelieving wife can be spiritually influenced by her believing husband. Same thing with the children. The children in that situation, if there's one spouse, if there's one person who's in the household, in the family, who's a believer, then even the children can be spiritually influenced. Again, God's saying, don't you realize the influence that you can... One person. The influence that you can have in a home? Don't minimize that. See, God here in this whole passage is elevating things. Elevating questions. Elevating sex as long as it's kept within God's prescribed boundary. Elevating women. Elevating marriage. Elevating our place in the family. And the difference that we can make in people's lives even within the family. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's much harder to influence family members than it is people that we don't know us as well. I get that. But God even says, don't discount the influence that the Holy Spirit can have through your walk with God with other people in that home. If the unbeliever, though, wants a divorce, verse 15, then Paul says, let it take place. If... if the unbeliever chooses, I cannot live with a believer, then God gives the believer that freedom to say, okay, go, I'm not going to fight it. Because he says, in these circumstances, the brother or sister, first of all, is not bound. The word literally means to become a slave. God says, I don't want you in that marriage to become a slave to your spouse, who's not a believer. That's not what marriage is about. In fact, he goes on to say, God has called you to peace. A state of harmony and tranquility. And if your walk with Christ is causing continual upheaval to the point where the unbeliever says, I want out. I cannot coexist. Then again, I think God says, let him go. Let him go. Now again, God says, if the unbeliever doesn't want to go then you as the believer need to stay. You can't be the one to initiate. But if the unbeliever leaves, then let him leave. But then he goes on in verse 16 again to say, how do you know, wife, believing wife, whether you will bring your husband literally to the brink of salvation? I mean, we as human beings can't save anybody. Only Jesus Christ only God can save through Jesus Christ. But he's saying God can use us as an instrument to bring someone else to the brink of salvation. And he says the same thing then to the husband. How do you know husband, believing husband, whether you will bring your wife, your unbelieving wife, to the brink of salvation? Again, elevating the difference that we can make in people's lives when we walk with God. Then verse 17. Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each person, so must he live. Here, God through Paul is saying, look, whatever place, part, or role God has assigned to you, wear it and wear it well. Don't, don't, don't seek to to remove the responsibility and the role and the place and the part that God has put a placed upon you. And then he goes to talk a little bit more about that. In fact, Paul says, I give this kind of direction in all the churches. 
And what Paul is saying to each Christian is, find your place, your role, and your assignment within the body and do it well and realize that there are no insignificant roles or people or places or parts in the body. Everyone is significant. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, was anyone called after he had been circumcised? He should not try to undo his circumcision. Was anyone called who is circumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Instead, keeping God's commandments is what counts. In other words, consulting every step of the way and complying with God's commandments. That's what counts, not what place I find myself in. Whether I was circumcised or not, he's going to go on to talk about slavery. Notice in verse 20, here's the principle, let each one remain. The word remain means to continue to make myself available to God in whatever situation or place in life in which I was called. So God here is saying, realize something. It's not where you are at any time in your life that really counts. It's are you available at that place in your life? Because the place that God is greater than who we are at that moment, what we're doing at that moment in our life, what position we hold, what kind of power or whatever. God doesn't need all that because God can overcome and work through all that. And the Bible is filled with stories like that. How God used people who were in prison. And instead of bemoaning, well, God, I think you could use me greater if I wasn't in prison all the time. It was like, you know what? God has me in prison because God can use me in prison. And and God can use me as a slave. And so instead of trying to not become a slave, maybe God wants me to be a slave and show that he can work even through slaves. So that's why he goes on to say, were you called as a slave? Do not worry about it. In other words, don't think that somehow, you know, wow, I've got to just focus on God. Getting out of being a slave. Because God can't use me as a slave. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. No, God can use you even as a slave. You know, many times as Christians, it's like we, we look at our value and we base our worth on who we are, what our occupation is, what we do. And one of the cool things that Paul's reminding us of as Christians is it doesn't matter who you are and what you do as far as God's concerned. If that's where God has you and that's the role or the place or the position that God has you at that time, you be the best whatever you are at that time and God will use you. Now, he is going to go on to say, look, if indeed you are able, verse 21, to be free then make the most of the opportunity. In other words, if it's within your power to not be a slave and to have your freedom, then go for it. Don't be one of these masochist Christians. It's like, well, God wants me to be a slave all my life, so I'm going to be a slave even though I could be free. No. Take your freedom. But what Paul's talking about here is when situations and circumstances in our life are beyond our control. There's not a thing we can do about it. And we find ourselves in a place as a Christian where we feel stuck. I don't want to be here, and yet I'm here. We all get there. And God is saying, uh, here's what I want you to know. That even in those times where you feel stuck, Christians should never feel stuck. God never wants his children to feel stuck. And here's why. Because, first of all, if God really wants the situation or circumstances to change, God could change them in an instant. 
That means then for the Christian, if God wants me here for this season of my life, then there is a purpose behind it. And in God's wisdom, I just need to trust God, be the best whatever I am at that point, and know that God's going to use it. That's tough for us, I realize. Because when you're in that, it's tough. I Many of you know our story. We came out to Arizona, didn't have jobs, thought God was going to open up a ministry job right away, and I ended up working at Starbucks out here for a year before I ever found another ministry job. And all those days of getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning and being at Starbucks up there on Val Vista and Baseline at 4 and thinking, people get up this early for Starbucks coffee? I mean, the drive-thru, there was like 10 cars at 4 o'clock in the morning. Like, do you people never go to sleep or what? You know. And all those mornings of getting up and going to Starbucks, going, wow, God, after 20 years of being a pastor, this is what it's come to, right? And going, you know, what could I, you know, how, you know, I was a pastor. I, I can see, maybe wrap my mind around how, God, you could use me as a pastor. How can you use me as a barista at Starbucks? And of course, God had to go, you know, here's how, Jeff. And over that year, God had to take me through some growing and maturing and realizing that God is so much bigger than what we do and who we are and what label we put on ourselves. And that's what God is saying to us here. He's elevating us. Just who we are. It doesn't matter what we do or what position we hold or anything else. We are special to God. We are of value to God and we are significant. And God can use us no matter what. The only limitation is us. We limit what God can do, not God. And that's why he goes on to say, Verse 22, for the one who was called in the Lord as a slave in the Lord is really the Lord's freedman. In other words, you're not really serving others anyway. You're serving the Lord. And in the same way, the one who was called as a free person is Christ's slave because you're really living for the will of God, not for your own will. Because you were bought with the price. So do not become slaves of men. Wow. The word become there means to settle. God is saying through Paul, don't settle to become a slave of a man. You are God's servant. You are the Lord Jesus Christ's servant. So don't reduce your life to being a slave of a man or a woman. So tomorrow, for some of you in this room, don't get up tomorrow and be heavy hearted when you leave your house going, well, I got to go to work for so-and-so. No. As a Christian, we don't go to work for so-and-so. That's just where God has us for now. We step out the door every day, no matter where we go to work or what we do, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And that's why he then again says in verse 24, in whatever situation... Someone was called, brothers and sisters. Let him remain in it with God. Think of Joseph. Joseph was in the prison unjustly by Potiphar's wife in Egypt. And yet the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph over and over again. And the Lord was using Joseph even though he was in prison. 
Now, Joseph, like us, if we'd have been, we'd probably said, God, man, you could use me in such a greater way if you just got me out of prison and, you know, exalted me to this high position. And he was going to do that, but he had some things that he had to learn first. And, and one of the things that Joseph had to learn, like we have to learn, is it doesn't matter who we are or where we're at. If God is with us, God will use us. With regard to the question about people who have never married, verse 25, I have my no command from the Lord again, but permission from the Lord. I give my opinion as one shown mercy by the Lord to be trustworthy. Because of the impending crisis, and many people believe, as I do, that this was a severe famine that was coming, a growing pressure and distress, Paul says, I think it best for you to remain as you are. In other words, don't at this time, especially at this time, don't get married. Don't, don't add one more thing to your life. And the one bound to a wife should not seek divorce. In other words, don't make any major life decisions with growing pressure coming in your life. Here's a great principle. Again, in the context of marriage or remaining single, but the principle is a great principle for all of us to remember. There are times in our life, there are seasons in our life where it is very unwise as Christians to add one more thing to our plate. And yet many Christians, it's like, yeah, my plate's full, but I'm just going to throw one more thing on there. And Paul's saying that's just really unwise. If you know things are bad and maybe going to get worse, the last thing you want to do is throw one more change, life change, one more thing on there. Don't do that to yourself, Paul says. That's just not wise. The one released from a wife should not seek marriage. Verse 20, if you marry, you've not sinned. It's not a matter of sinning. It's just a matter of wisdom. Is it really the wise thing to do with all this growing pressure and severe famine? Do you want to get married during a severe famine and then not only have the responsibility of feeding yourself, but feeding your wife and maybe children? Paul says, really, you're going to do that? Not wise. So Paul here is talking about wisdom in life choices. He's also talking about timing in life choices. He's not saying here, well, it would be unwise to never get married. Obviously, he's elevated marriage in this passage. But he's saying sometimes the timing isn't right in certain situations. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face difficult circumstances. Hmm. Now, Paul is saying this not just in the context of the famine or whatever distress is coming. Paul's actually giving us a picture of marriage that... We, especially who are married, and maybe those of you who are single who desire to be married, you need to know. When the Bible says that those who will be married will face difficult circumstances, it is a principle of marriage. It literally means those will be pressed together under pressure. That's literally what the Greek means. So get the picture here. Paul's saying when two people get married, they are pressed together. And under pressure. That's the picture of marriage. That's why marriages do struggle so much. Because you've got two people, two different people, people who think differently, different this, different that, who have to be pressed together in order to make marriage work the way God said. But then also, as you come together and are pressed together, you're under pressure. And that's why marriages need to be strengthened. That's why Lisa and I are going to do the marriage getaway. 
I don't know of a marriage, I don't care how strong a marriage it is, every marriage needs encouragement. Every marriage needs strengthening. Every marriage needs attention. That's why we see such a high divorce rate in our society today. Because marriage is two people being pressed together under pressure. And if their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with each other isn't strong, it will crumble. That's what the Bible says. That's, that's a wake-up call for all of us. And then he says, I'm, not, I'm trying to spare you such problems. Verse 29, and I say this, brothers and sisters, the time is short. Now, I'm going to save these verses because we're going to get to these next week before we get into chapter 8, but I want to go on then to verse 32. In verse 32 through verse 35, for those of you especially here tonight who are single, Paul is really giving single people uh, something to to shoot for. Because he's basically saying, you who are single are going to be held more responsible to live for the Lord without distraction than people who are married. Listen to the passage. I want you to be free from concern, unnecessary concern. An unmarried man is concerned, literally carefully looking out for the things of the Lord. At least that's what Paul said. We all know that there are a lot of single people that are single, but their first priority in life isn't concern over the things of the Lord. But Paul said, if you're single, really, that's the way it should be, right? How to please the Lord. A married man, verse 33, is concerned about the things of the world, how to please his wife. Now, again, Paul's not saying we're worldly when we want to please our wife. The word please here means to accommodate, to cooperate with. And all he's simply saying is, look, again, there's nothing wrong with getting married. God elevates marriage. Institution of marriage, high. But Paul's saying when you get married, realize this. It puts one more responsibility into your life that takes away some time from you being able to devote that time to the Lord rather than to your spouse. That's all he's saying. So that's why it goes back to singles who are not married and do not have that responsibility. And they go, you know what? In Paul's eyes and God's eyes, should be more time than for the Lord, right? And he is divided, verse 34. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord to be holy both in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place a limitation on you, but so that without distraction... You may give notable and constant service to the Lord. So he's really saying to singles, singles, first of all, you should be admired. You should be admired. Singleness should be elevated. And as a single, especially one who's sold out to the Lord, man, doesn't get any better than that, Paul says. That, that's, that's cool. That's a good thing. Now, verse 36 through 38, I'm not going to take the time. It's a confusing translation, no matter what translation you have. I think all that Paul's saying in these verses is, if you want to get married, get married. If you don't want to get married, don't get married. I know, that's, but that's what I think those verses mean. But when he gets to verse 39, again, here's where marriage is elevated. He says, but. If you get married, remember this. Marriage is for life. He says a wife is bound as long as her husband is living. From God's perspective, God designed marriage for life. 
Second principle. If her husband dies, or obviously if his wife dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only someone in the Lord. In other words, marriage is for life, but if your spouse dies, God will permit you to be remarried with his blessing, but it's got to be another Christian. It's got to be another Christian. And then he goes on to say, in my opinion, she will be happier if she remains as she is. Again, going back to that elevating singleness. And I think that, too, I have the Spirit of God. Paul's covered a lot of ground here tonight. I hope that more than anything, what you sort of got out of the passage, that I got out of the passage, was no matter whether we're talking about questions or sexual intimacy or singleness or marriage or whatever, whatever place I find myself in life, that God, every time God is in something, he elevates it. He raises it up to another level. And God wants you to see that whatever you're involved in, whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever, God considers you special and significant and of value. And whatever position or place you find yourself in your life, God can use you. God is not limited by who we are or what we do. He is the God of the universe. And we may find ourselves in seasons of life where... The circumstances of life are out of our control. Maybe we go into work and and tomorrow we get a pink slip and they lay us off. And we didn't even see it coming. And I know for many, you know, even Christians, that's hard. I saw my mom and dad go through that. My dad worked for a company for 30 years and then got let go, like many people do. And like, wow, you know, we begin to question who we are and our worth and our value. And God is saying, I know that that's hard to struggle through, but don't let yourself go there. Remember that even when you're out of work or even when you're doing something like working at Starbucks and you didn't see yourself doing that, that God is in that and God is using that in your life and in other people's lives. And don't let your life defined by who you are and what you do. God will always elevate and raise up everyone and everything that God is involved with. And that's what I think primarily this passage is about. That's why Paul says, if it's, with, if it's outside of your control, then whatever circumstance or place you find yourself in, realize that God has you there for a reason. Maybe it's something in your life that he needs to work through. Maybe it's something, somebody else that he wants to reach through you. But realize that God has you in that place for a reason. And when God wants you out of that place, he will provide opportunity for you to leave. Again, it's so hard for us because when we find ourselves in places in life where we don't like where we're at, we will do everything we can to try to get out of it. And God, again, says if if there's a way to better yourself, better yourself. But if you can't get out of that, if it's beyond your control, rest in God and rest in your relationship with God and just keep reminding yourself God has you there in that season for a reason. Let's pray. God, thank you for just being so practical. Lord, the Bible is so practical, so relevant, so right where we live every day. 
And God, you have just reminded us once again tonight that anything and anyone and everything that you're involved in, you raise it up, you lift it up, you elevate it to a whole other level. Help us to see, Lord, tonight our value and our significance, not only in your eyes, but Lord, in in what you want to do in and through our lives. Help us, Lord, to leave here with a, with a renewed sense of, of who we are in You, in Christ. And, and Lord, what You want our life to be like. And even though we can get so discouraged so easily because of circumstances, Lord, help us to realize that You are above the circumstances. And that You want us to live above the circumstances as well. So God, go with us. Continue to encourage us this week and bring us all back on Sunday that, Lord, not only might we be together and dive into your word, but, Lord, that we might also have some real sweet fellowship around the table uh, at lunchtime as well for our potluck, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you Sunday.